The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network. My guest is BAFTA winning director, Michael J. Ferns. Michael grew up in Glasgow with a passion for filmmaking from around 12 years old. We saw him go and study at the Royal Conservatoire. Now a BAFTA winning and double BAFTA nominated director, he's worked with people like Richard Branson and Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton, and with prestigious brands such as Johnny Walker, Clinique and Nespresso. We talk about Michael's creative inspiration and what drives his commercial work and his award-winning short films. Michael explains the dynamics of working in children's television and with people like Justin Bieber. And we hear about the famous faces who behaved the worst on set. And as always, there's plenty more. This episode is by financial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt. Then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash bleddered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tom McAllicker where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. really enjoyed researching you because you've got such an interesting body of work we'll go to to paint the picture for the people listening we'll we'll hear a bit about you growing up in glasgow is are you from glasgow i'm from glasgow originally yeah i uh, was born in the west end lived here for about four years and then moved out to a village where's the village it's called balfron it's between here and sterling ah, i know balfron does that come is that come under sterling or is it eastern bartonshire sterling Right, okay. Yeah. It's miles out. It's like a way, way past Mulgay and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like about forty minute drive. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would the first first things first. Then, so as a film director, I think that's quite an unusual for a young guy. I think it's quite an unusual career path. It seems to me, I might be wrong because there's people like, do you know Hannah Curry? I don't know Hannah. No. So Hannah's um, also a, a director as well. And she's been on, and I said the same thing to her. I was like. It's something I always assume of older people once they've done like various other roles. Your first sort of inkling that you wanted to do it was it the the target thing? I'll yeah, let you I mean, tell that story if it was. Sure. I mean, to be honest, it's it's not something I have a particularly good answer for. My sort of go to answer tends to be um, my grandfather was sort of tangentially involved in film. He uh, set up the GFT in Glasgow and was the wow. director of the Edinburgh Film Festival and stuff like that. So he kind of, he was involved from a kind of business side. Yeah. However, when his, when I spoke to him kind of early on, when I was wanting to get into this kind of like, you know, 12, 13, you know, he was like, I would have had loads of amazing contacts for you if they hadn't all died <laughs> thus far. Um, but uh, so, so yes, I'm not sure that's exactly the answer, but yeah, but the, the, the Taggart connection is the, because uh, my family knew I was interested in in that. My grandfather was friends with, I think, a writer that, that that did Taggart for a while, and 
he had mentioned that they were looking for a kind of lockside location and they had a, had a lovely house on the side of Loch Lomond. And uh, they went, well, well, you know, that would be really interesting for Michael to see. So they, they agreed to let the film crew come in um, and film there. And to be honest, that was like such an exciting thing to yeah. see. I think sort of seeing a proper set run and, you know, because I'd been sort of doing little bits myself, but I had no idea how the kind of structure worked or the, you know, the hierarchy on a set worked or anything mm. like that. And I think seeing that all for the first time, I was like, shit, no, I want to, like, I want to do this. Did they just let you in to, and like, to kind of roam around or see what was going on? Or did you have to have some sort of distance? Yeah, I mean, there was a certain element of that. I mean, obviously, when you're filming at someone's house, there's only so much distance you can have yeah. before you have to leave the property. Um, but no, they were really good, actually. They, they you know, met the cast and the, the, the crew were really friendly. And I did night, I managed to have a chat with the director. I was a little shy, I have to admit, mm. but I was, you know, I sort of, did some filming, behind the scenes filming of it myself, whether or not I was allowed to do that. Yeah, uh, before that, because I was going to ask about the time you got your family to star in a... Time, uh, it would be times, many times. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one, of your, one of your initial ones with a, with a camcorder. I had a camcorder as well. Um, I'm I'm laughing, like kind of to myself, thinking about you saying they came to film at your grandparents' house in Loch Lomond. So that's one experience I tag up. And I remember being at the Barris one Sunday and seeing them filming Target and we got to walk past in the sort of background. So a kind of similar similar experience. But um, It's sort of one of those things that even kind of, you know, 15 years after it finished, uh, roughly about that, you know, you still get asked when I'm shooting a commercial in, in Glasgow, you'll still get the odd person that comes past and asks if you're filming Target. <laughs> but I was going to say a, a very similar experience, but wholly different. That is hilarious. I always assume that as well. If I see something, well, back back in the day, I believe if something's been filmed, then it's um, then it's Taggart. So, from do you think did that re- see it like having that sort of interest, and then coupled with that experience, did that then just trigger it? And you thinking, right, this is what I want to do. Pretty much, I would say. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd say the kind of the experiencing the Taggart filming was definitely a kind of catalyst, yeah, as well. You know, and and seeing the fact that you know, that what an exciting job that would be in the kind of collaborative effort of it and all of that kind of stuff. Because uh, as I said, I didn't know too much about the structure before that. But yeah, I think I would say from about then on, I mean, I was 12 when that happened. Yeah. And I'd, I was pretty single-minded after that, to be mm-hmm. honest. And I think the only reason I'm doing what I am now is because I was like bloody-minded from 12 mm-hmm. and just kind of like went at it kind of. And there was, there was a sense in which, you know, I've, I've often been asked whether you know, my parents were, you know, keen to kind of push me down a more kind of traditional route. It's like, maybe don't do that. That sounds a bit risky. Let's do this. And it was just, I I think even if they were tempted to say that, which mm-hmm. I don't think they were, I don't think I, it would have been an option. I think yeah, they could just, see that I was, I was full on. Just been ignored. Is that like reflective of your personality? You know, in this, the way that ordinarily when somebody sees that and they see the excitement, a lot of people think, hey, I want to be in front of the camera. I want to be the actor. Is, or am I just looking too much into that? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I never really wanted to be an actor. Um, I think I enjoyed the kind of craft process of it. I've said, I've sort of said this before, but I think there's strikes me as though there's sort of two routes into directing in some in some sense. In that, you know, I've got friends who are directors who follow the other route, which tends to be, you know, they've had a story burning in them since they were like five years old, and kind yeah. of, you know, film happened to be the way they told that story and explored those themes, but you know, it could have been a painting, it could have been through music, it could have been theatre, you know, and for me, it was the craft element that interested me. I found, you know, shooting on camera is exciting. How do you tell stories shooting on cameras? How do you create even basic 
sort of precepts like continuity and you know how does how, how do you edit something to music and you know that just felt exciting mm. and it felt like things were clicking so i think that kind of that's really what drove me and then actually the kind of more storytelling thematic explorations came later mm-hmm. it's like as somebody i don't have the first clue about all of those things that you just said but from having so i watched as many of like your commercial work as possible and the sort of thing i was getting was that i was watching it with trying to be a critical eye in the sense of i was like right what am i actually looking for here everyone in the process is watching it with a critical yeah eye. but i was like the, the what's the point i'm kind of trying to get across here I knew from, like from the outset, just from the image, I was like, okay, I know where this is going, but I know what I'm supposed to be feeling here. Sure. Which I suppose isn't actually, that sounds very, I don't know, simplistic. And you're like, yeah, obviously that's meant to happen. But it's probably a lot more difficult to, to actually do that, what, in the space of two mm. seconds? Well, I guess, I mean, realize. I, yeah, I mean, I guess in, in stuff as short as commercial work, which tends to be, you know, 30, 40 seconds, you know, you are, you're not going to be exploring you know, long, complex narratives. You know, you're you're imparting a a tone and a feeling and and a sort of sense of what you're trying to say rather than any specific set of instructions. And I think, you know, that all, you know, that comes down to the aesthetic of the piece, which is the photography, the production design, you know, the lighting. Um, it comes down to the music, it comes down to, you know, kind of how quickly paced it is. I think all all of the all of these the sort of dimensions of filmmaking you know, set you up for a specific outcome, right? So, mm. you know, if you're wanting to create something that reflects an exciting product, you know, the natural instinct is going to be having slightly more kinetic camera work, faster cuts, all of those kind of things. Now, obviously those are kind of cliches and you can play with those sort of genre types sometimes, but but I think you're right. I think it, it, the the initial frame and the initial feeling has to be kind of set set so that mm. you so that you're creating this kind of holistic feeling that uh, you know a, a viewer comes away with kind of jumping forward and i'm obsessed with chronology when doing these interviews but it's related to my question right so with your brand work and commercial advertising i'm just going to rhyme some of these off to give people an, a you know a feel for mm. the the level and the the prestige of the brands uh, that you're working with virgin doing richard branson's autobiography Finding My Virginity, which was shot in London. Now we've got Johnny Walker, Clinique, Sainsbury's, Nespresso, Lego, I thought that was hilarious, Aperol Spritz, LinkedIn, Scottish Government, Cowan Gate, Thornton's, Quorn, uh, Macmillan Cancer Research. These are all high-end brands, like global brands, and and they're, they're coming to you. First of all, I suppose my first question, right, how does that feel when they come to you and ask you to do something? Because these are... You know, these companies could go anywhere and they're yeah. coming to you. So, so basically, well, I mean, it's so that that's not, doesn't tend to be how it happens. Rather, the brands don't tend to come to me. So the basic structure of it with advertising work is that I am directly represented by production companies in different regions. Right. Okay. And so production companies who are producing the commercials have a roster of directors that they work with who, you know, if, if their roster is balanced correctly, how they have different directors, they do different style of right, styles okay. of things. Right. Um, so generally what will happen will be a client will hire an advertising agency. So a client like, you know, Nespresso will hire an advertising agency that will develop their campaign. And that's your kind of, you know, the Mad Men reference is, is, is you know, that's the advertising agency portion of it. Um, they'll concept the campaign and that will be a broad campaign, you know, across print and digital and all sorts of things. And then part of that will be their TV, TV ad. Mm-hmm. 
portion. And then, so once they've written the idea for that and the client like that, they pitch that out to multiple production companies, each of whom represent a series of directors. And they say, well, you know, send us directors you think would be appropriate for this job. So these multitude of production companies will send a few directors each, let's say, with some bespoke showreels of work that Mm -hmm. show how they would be appropriate for it. And then the agency pick three or four of those directors to write a pitch document, which, you know, we call a treatment which is basically taking their script and breaking down how you would approach it as a director. So mm-hmm. how you'd approach the storytelling elements, how you kind of approach the set design, the music, the cinematography, all of those kind of things. And then I put that pitch document together. Sometimes these things are 50, 60 pages long. And then we pitch that to the agency along with the other directors who are pitching against us. And then it's on the basis of that, that you win the job. So it's, it, it is, it's a relatively extended yeah process i mean i would never have known that i bet you the majority of people listening so if i was you i would just say no yeah the ceo of uh johnny walker came to me came to my door and asked me to do it well See, i think well i think the thing about that is is that obviously a lot of people are doing work directly with brands yeah but the people that do work directly with brands tend to be doing smaller social content work mm-hmm. so that is the so obviously you know a brand like nespresso are making a lot of stuff yeah now they might only make a few TV cinema campaign ads a year, but they'll be making a lot of stuff for their Facebook, a lot of stuff for their Instagram. They'll be hiring individual filmmakers who shoot and edit themselves and do all that kind of stuff. And and they may well, their marketing team may well contact people like that directly. But when it comes to the big brand campaigns, there's a a kind of real process hierarchy, and which is why the whole kind of competitive pitch element is there because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're spending maybe, you know, 300 grand on a 30 second spot rather than 10 grand. You know, and and they're hiring a team of sixty people to do it. You know, how do you strike the balance between I have to get this job done and you have to do what the client wants? Because I'm assuming there is a very when you reduce it to its its basic point, they're like, this is what we want to get across. Whether it's this feeling, this message, how do you sort of balance that up between achieving what they want and having your own creative mm. expression? Because you've obviously gone in there and saying this is how I would express this. Mm. Or, well, or well, like I guess, I guess you're, you've already got a, a, a foot in the door there to some degree because the the reason they've selected you to produce it is because they like what you do, and yeah. in theory, you have a continuity of style across your work. And I think that's that's a kind of luxury you get, I guess, when you're doing the kind of the the bigger brand work, and when you've been doing it for at least a few years and working with a similar team, is you get to develop a continuity of style across your stuff. So you can be the kind of person that's like, okay, well I do this kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well we'll hire Michael because he brings this tonality, this aesthetic to a piece. Mm-hmm. So, however, of course there are decision points, a million decision points within the the process whereby, you know, you're going to have contention, but I actually think that tension's a necessary thing. You know, I, I, I don't think it would be, Obviously, in the moment, you're acutely like, well, yes, obviously, it'd be nice if you just kind of nodded and agreed with everything <laughs> I was saying. But in some sense, you know, because you've got the advertising agency and the client, you know, kind of that you're working for, you, I think the tension's good because they're hiring you to have the tension in some sense because they they don't want you just to agree with what they're saying. Otherwise, they'll, they would just be making it themselves. Yeah. They want you to push back. But I think it's actually the the fact that I... My job is to want to make the best piece of film possible. Yeah. The client's job, let's say, is to want to sell their product in in the most effective way they can. And those things aren't necessarily, you know, commensurate. Those things sometimes are at odds with one another. But I think actually it's the it's the tension of those two 
interest pushing against each other creates the best work. Do you think that, so say, let's just say you're trying to get across the emotion, you're trying to emotionally impact somebody, whether it's with them, I don't know, the tone of, of the advert resonating mm. with them in some way or it evoking some sort of emotion. Mm. Do you think that is as fundamentally important for selling for brands as messaging? Does that mm. make sense? Because you've got the messaging, you've got the, here's what we're selling, but then you've got the emotion. For example, the John Lewis advert is yeah, probably yeah, sure. a good example. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, that's really a a sort of advertising strategy question, and mm. that isn't really something I get involved in too much. Obviously, I have my suspicions. I mean, I think I think the the issue with commercials is that basically people don't want to watch them, right? I mean, yeah. they're not. It's, people aren't seeking out. Obviously, people in the industry do, you know, and I find it interesting. But people, generally speaking, don't want to be watching these things. And so, your job is already that you want to win them over. Whereas, if obviously, if someone goes to the cinema to see a film, they're they're on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. and 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 you know, and they do hold it to a high standard, but there's a sense in which they want it to be good so they can justify their expenditure. <laughs> Whereas right. they just want to get these things over with. So, I think the emotional element is important, and I think that I think good filmmaking is important regardless of mm-hmm. of, of where you're coming from. And there are a lot of really terrible commercials out there. There's obviously no question about that, but the, but the ones you remember and the ones that people get excited about, or, you know, we'll talk about are, do tend to be, well, they are, in my opinion, the, the interesting stories and the interesting cinematic approaches. Mm-hmm. So you're speaking really intellectually about advertising, the correlation between that and, and filmmaking. And I'm now going to just rhyme off all the adverts that I remember. <laughs> and there is a reason for this, right? But so for example, where inspiration comes in boxes, can you finish it? I don't know that. You don't one. know that? Fuck me. Ceramic tile warehouse. Right, so... <laughs> so that, that, sounds, that sounds local, if I'm honest. I, I know. As, as, it? it's, it's, it's Clyde one, right? There's that. Right, okay. There was um, Tony from Tile. I'll tell them Tony sent you. Uh, and there's this other advert out just now, right? And I despise it. People are wondering where the hell I'm going with this. I do have okay. a point, right? Uh, it's called Scots Go Dating, right? And it's okay. on, like, regional radio. I honestly want to crash my car into a wall when it comes on. I mean, I obviously don't get involved in radio adverts. Yeah, I know. So perhaps but, that's so, but so the for the concept, <laughs> and, and there's a couple of other adverts right on TV that are really, really, really annoying. Um, and these adverts are made in order to like stick in your mind mm. and for you to remember it. And even though they piss you off or they're annoying or whatever, they're effective in well, the sense. What like go compare? Or go, yes, like exactly. Go compare. That's yeah. a great example. And to be honest, probably the meerkats started there. Oh uh, yeah, they, they, I. They, Kind of, <laughs> well, yeah. they've been, they've been sanctioned now, haven't they? <laughs> you well, know, no, they've made bloody movies about it. You know, people are a fan. Really? Yeah, I think they've. I think they've, they're either making or they've made meerkat movies. They're also the reason meerkats are so prominent in zoos and all sorts oh, of eh? things. At the moment, just because of that. Oh, well, they've been yeah, they've been deported time. back to Russia now. <laughs> um, so th- those are examples of advertising having actually or the advert having nothing to do with. Um, kind of what the actual product is. Another great example, I think, of that is, you know, the um, the gorilla playing the uh, mm. in the air tonight for mm. ca- um, Phil Collins' song for yeah, Cadbury. Yeah. Nothing to do with chocolate. Yeah, yeah. But everybody remembers it to this sure. day. They might remember it for a different reason, though, because I feel like the Go Compare uh, probably is, and like Flash, was it Flash that had the that, that guy in it? But um, I think they're purposefully designed to stick in your mind. Are you thinking of sell, sell It Bang? I'm thinking of Sell It Bang. Yeah. Sorry, Flash. Um, I think they're purposefully 
made to stick in your mind in a way that is just annoying. And I think I think the I think the annoying is part of the charm. I think, or they certainly believe it's part of the charm. Yeah. Whereas obviously something like the Cadbury's Gorilla was. It was like a strange piece of abstract art. Or yeah, something. I suppose you didn't know what the hell it was. You didn't know for. what you're watching, and it was handled in a kind of it was it was weird enough to be remembered yeah. rather than so irritating. The, people are still wondering why I just started singing about the ceramic tile warehouse. So the question I was going to ask is, and I feel I kinda know the answer, but I'll ask you anyway. If say the an advertising agency came to you and they said, Look, we just want to make this fucking annoying advert, mm. we'll need it to stick in people's heads. Would you do it because it's part of the job, or would you say I'm not even I'm not even pitching for that because it's just not for me? Because would it just be too contradictory to your sort of creative beliefs? Well, my honest answer is it would depend when they asked me and how much money how much money it was going to be. Money talks, I mean, bullshit. Look, works. I mean, look, this you know this is a job too. I mean, I'm I feel genuinely very lucky that I'm getting to direct full time as a job and yeah. and the reason you get to do that full time is is if they're paying you to do it you know and you know obviously it would be nice to be just making exactly what you wanted all the time mm-hmm. you know and and I have a great deal of respect for people who are um who kind of aim at that goal but it's not commercially viable to aim at that goal yeah. all the time and Truthfully, there is, you know, it's it's a give and take because I have access to budgets that I would obviously not have access to if I were if I were turning things down. And also, I am a genuine believer that you don't know what you get from doing each project. Now, I might not share every project on social media or put it on my website or any of the or promote it in any way. Yeah. But there is a sense in which you don't know who you meet. You don't know what little element of each job might be useful for some pitch in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know. And and I'm kind of. I certainly wouldn't turn it down on kind of artistic integrity grounds. You know, there are things I like and there are things that I'll push and there's things that are things that I'm proud of cinematically and creatively. But, you know, you know, the, the, uh, there are certain filmmakers who, you know, who go for exactly what they want to do all the time. And I, and I, I it's, 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 you know, there's a, there's a kind of poetic integrity to that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how pragmatic it is like really. Like in like in actual terms, yeah, it's um, it's like a sort of I don't know if you're working in the in the creative arts in some in some format or some um, segment of that industry, and there is like that idealism where I know mm. I only do what what I feel is artistically credible to me. I think that's a great point. But it's also like, what other job are you ever given that? Yeah, exactly that, that leeway. I also don't want to pretend that I, you know, obviously I do this because I find it creative and I find it fulfilling. And my reason for being in commercials and not pushing into not doing TV drama most of the time is that I found it to be the most viable way to be creative because it's a director's medium really. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, long form TV drama isn't actually very much of a director's medium. Obviously if you create your own TV series and you have creative oversight, fantastic. But you know, the reason I've opted for commercials is because I really enjoy being on set. I like, you know, being able to explore different creative avenues. And, and, and I'm a details person. I like mm-hmm. spending three or four months obsessing over 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't get to do that in television. Um, drama, generally speaking. I mean, obviously there's a level at which you do get to do that. But there's also, you know, there's lots of filmmakers who, and I'm not taking away from them at all, who, you know, shoot their own stuff, edit their own stuff you know, kind of go out run and gun style and film. And it's like, I enjoy the collaborative part of my job. I enjoy the fact that 
when I'm on set, you know, it's a 40, 50, 60 person crew and everyone mm-hmm. has their expertise and I'm kind of working with the best of the best in each of those, you know, departments, Yeah, you know, and I view my position in that is like a kind of sort of ship's captain in some sense, because, you know, I couldn't sail that ship alone, but you do need someone that's deciding where it's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that kind of ties in those, I've got something here that you said in 2017, your words, I feel better spending a longer time crafting a short piece than the intensity of churning out lots of stuff. Mm. So that completely, I mean, I was going to ask you that, but you've, you've answered my question before <laughs> I've even, I've even put that to you. Um, I think well, the thing is also the thing is I've done both, you yeah. know, and there is an excitement about doing kind of just really making stuff at, at speed and, you know, and the challenge of that. Mm. But, you know, when you're talking about what's creatively fulfilling and what kind of you know, what, what, what the reason is you're doing this and what you, cause I still want to get that sense of like, Oh shit, that feels good that that paid off yeah. in the manner that it did. And I think I'm such a perfectionist when it comes to the details that it's, you know, it's just a bit torturous doing stuff that you have to do super quickly because mm. you don't get to be as, <laughs> as in control as you might. So I suppose then to answer a question, I think a lot of people will have in their minds is as they're hearing about all the work that you've done is this, the starting point for that formal training. Was mm. that just straight to the Royal Conservatoire or did you do anything like in between? I mean, in terms of commercial, there was certainly no formal training for commercials. Um, I think, you know, so I, st- I went to the the Royal Conservatoire or the RCMD as it was when I went there in 2009 um, when I was 17 and um to do their f- sort of filmmaking course. And, you know, I'd done lots of my own stuff before that. Um, I would say I'm not totally convinced that that training in filmmaking is a necessary mm. thing to do. I think for me, it was more valuable in the sense that it gave me kind of three years to mature yeah. and to think about things in a way that I wasn't being pressurized to make loads of money while yeah. doing it, you know. Um, but I think there's certain things that it, that you might struggle to teach. And there's, you know, the, 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 kind of the idea if you can't do teach is not a million miles from the, the truth in certain um, positions, let's say. All right. Um, but, you know, I think the best kind of filmmaking courses tend to be visiting shooters from people who are working in the industry. Mm-hmm. I think it's not something you can teach full time and really have a grasp on how you develop a craft and how you, you know, teach people how it's actually working yeah you know because you can talk in theory but the practice is quite different i'm pretty similar in that sense you could you can you could spend five years telling me about something and if i I feel if i have five days can i actually doing it in practice it'll be far different so also following your intuitions because i think that's another thing as a as a as a director and certainly in commercials you are your taste is everything mm -hmm. you know how you you can't you can theorize to you know, to, to the end of the earth. But the important thing is that you follow, you know, when you cut, when you come to make all the decision points you make, cause you're just met with a million decision points as a director on any project, you know, it's the, it's the wardrobe, it's the, you know, the set design, it's the color palette of the whole thing. It's yeah. the color grading, it's the music, it's the cinematography. Like you're just, you've got all of these people leading departments coming at you with all of these questions and it's not theoretical. It's, it's intuitive and it, and it's intuitive and your intuition is, you know, derived from your sort of felt taste, Yeah. you know, so you need to bring what you like to, to that and you should be able to answer immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, if someone says, how do you feel about this? Or how do you feel about this frame? What do you think of this? It's like, if you can't answer immediately, you're thinking about it too much. Yeah, I completely agree with that, but intuition and, in, and in every facet of life, to be honest, um, 
I think your intuition is really wrong. Even if I think in the short term it may be, but mm. the longer term, sort of looking back retrospectively, mm. whether it's you've learned something or I don't know, it's put you, it's I don't know, set you on a different course. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, but also, but, but also, there's this misconception that intuition is just chaotic and random and just your kind of random thought in the moment. But intu- I mean, you, your intuition is an accumulation of all your past experiences yeah. that are that have either been right or wrong and so if you're if you're coming if i'm coming at something intuitively it's not just it's not a random decision it's a felt knowledge that's been embedded in you over all the stuff you've mm. learned from the last 10 years of doing it i suppose then the alternative to listening to your intuition and following it would be trying to think well what trying to second guess what do people want what do, what what is popular what is sort of in vogue right now and mm. Can I see it a lot with, I suppose, for me, it's with podcasts. I'll see people doing it. Um, and I always think, just be true to yourself because mm. either in the way that you speak or the things that you talk about or the people you interview, the people who are supposed to then mm. gravitate towards you, your work, you know, they'll come. Well, that's it's, another way of saying intuition, isn't it? I mean, being true to you. Intuition is essentially being true to yourself, yeah, right? Yeah. The um, So you, you studied for three years at 2012. This is the point that you moved down to London. Yeah, is so that right? Why in, in 2013 or 2014 even? Yeah. yeah. So you you've said that there's quite a strong filmmaker community in Glasgow, mm. but it was is London just the place that you have to go to kind of <laughs> jump into the ocean? How is it? So the, the there are a lot of enthusiastic filmmakers in Glasgow, mm. and I was one of the enthusiastic filmmakers in Glasgow. I think the issue is the infrastructure isn't here for a lot of the the genres. I think that's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly for, you know, moving into commercial work, which is something I kind of, you know, was interested in doing just because I, you know, I, I, I found a lot of that kind of work inspiring, you know, the good, the good parts of it. Um, London's market is just so much bigger. I mean, I, it, you know, you can have your national gripes about stuff like that and, you know, and you, you might be right, but the, it is just where it is. It's where the clients are. Oh, yeah. It's where the agencies are. It no is therefore where the production companies are. It is therefore where all the the facilities houses are. And it is therefore where the talent is. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say that there aren't talented people in Scotland. I, I, and certainly not to say that there aren't talented Scottish people. Um, but obviously you're going to gravitate towards where you can get, where you can muck in and get truly involved. And, no I, and, I, and I think that is building here. But I do think there's, for me, it felt like I would have been limited if I'd stayed here, mm-hmm. at least initially. I mean, I'm back now, so <laughs> times have changed. Yeah, you forged those links, though, and those yeah. links are there, I think, and that and that starting point of something I did as well, and that starting point was get to London as quickly mm. as possible, even making connections, making mm. contacts. But if you're not there, if your face, mm. I think sometimes if your face isn't seen, if people don't know who you are, yeah. then you will you will be considered as a well. Also, it's a kind of there's a sort of strange national antagonism between sort of Scotland and London that I don't yeah, understand. But, well, I mean, what, especially since London is not representative of the kind of <laughs> conservative England that people yeah. seem to be pushing against, because that is not London, and it's certainly not my experience of London. No, completely. I mean, this is something I feel I could talk about for hours. I'm in I'm in London like once a month, hmm. and. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is look at people's voting intentions or people mm. where these constituencies are voting, whether it's on Brexit, who they're voting for in general elections. I think people conflate Westminster and the people that are controlling it with 
London in general, which I kind of get. You look at funding for, for example, this Queen Elizabeth line, mm. and then you look at funding for infrastructure in Scotland, you're like, that's heavily imbalanced. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, maybe I, I can't speak for everybody, but I think th- like isolated things like that will shape people's opinions here mm. and not to be insulting or, or disparaging or patronising towards anybody, but I think anyone who has mm. those general opinions or views I don't think they're actually going because well, that's all, not my experience. Not, it's also just not a very holistic, holistic viewpoint. You know, mm. I think, you know, obviously there are, there are specific gripes worth having, Yeah, you know, and, but you also have to remember that there are 3 million more people in the city of London than there is in the entirety of Scotland. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and obviously Scotland is a, an, a, you know, a national, a national entity, sorry, um, more than London is, but, you know, Yes, I mean obviously the infrastructure has to be there when you're surfing yeah. surfing eight nine million people. Now, obviously, I'm no expert on 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 kind of infrastructure in large cities, but um, but yeah, no, I do feel like people. You might have noticed this: people outside of London and people who, and I would say, often people here, um, who have never lived in London, love to tell you that they couldn't live in London. It's yeah. like their favorite thing to say to you. I often see that all the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> They go, they go, that's cool. I couldn't live there. It's like, well, do you know what? My my experience of that is different. You know, I mean, I don't know how I felt. I didn't have particularly strong feelings on London before I moved, but I really loved living there. And and I've moved back to Glasgow now, but it is not, people assume it's because I'd had too much. Yeah. And it really isn't the case. I just, you know, I I kind of always intended it would be nice to live back here, but I'm there all the time. Where, um, whereabouts did you stay when you were down there? A variety of places. I mean, it's the kind of, you know, obviously the, the kind of classic story of the first place I stayed in was the size of my bathroom. Oh yeah. Um, You know, it really was the size of a single bed and room for another single bed. And then like, that was it. (laughs) And, um, you know, but I I didn't care, you know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was pricey and everything, but it was like, yeah, I mean, you don't, you truthfully, you don't move to London for the, for the accommodation. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, if, if you, if you're, if you really care about the accommodation, probably not the place to be but if you care about the opportunity that offers the buzz i just i just loved it and but i love it here too i mean i really i, I don't I, i'm not interested in pitting two places against that's one such a good point like yeah. uh, there's so many cities i love people say no i prefer glasgow I prefer london it's like mm. i prefer to have a mix of both yeah i would agree like, 100%, it's, yeah. it's 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 easily one of my favorite cities in the world i think um if when anybody says to me they hate it or whatever i'm thinking you've either been once hmm. And you were maybe cutting around Covent Garden and Trafalgar Square. Yeah, in, and the, in the heat you off. and then paying like, you know, six pounds for a latte at some tourist aye, stall. It's aye, like, well, fair aye. enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Aye, I can, <laughs> it, don't do that when you live there would be the best piece no, of advice. No, I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an incredible place. I can, and from from like a, a quick glance, I'm like, yeah, I understand people's gripes. I understand where they're coming from. But I think where they're coming from is a, a position of mm, misunderstanding. It's probably well I, would, I, would, I would probably, well, I tend to agree with that. I mean, yeah. I think that my experience hasn't been what's claimed. Oh, I'm just going to take this off on a mad tangent, but where do you, like, what do you do? Like, what is your go-to thing? Because I've got like my go-to things I do as soon as I get down. Like, let's just say you're getting the train down. Mm. What are you doing first when you get into the city? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I actually only moved back here about six months ago. Oh, really? So, so, my, so, so I, I've actually only been back in Glasgow, yeah, since... October of last right, year. Right, right, so, okay. So, I mean, really, I've only been down mostly for work. So I guess wherever I've been, this is going to sound like the wankiest thing ever, but Soho House is, tends to be where I would go with people. 
Yeah, see, I've my pals. If I, I need to pull the trigger on that, <laughs> like I need to pull the trigger on that because my mates are all at Barcelona. Oh, yeah. A few in London as well. There's there's a there's a house in Barcelona. Yeah, well. I know, I know. I go to it. I always just go in with them and just Good fun. I just blag it in. But I'm like, I need to get my own membership because I can't be just relying on them. Like that's one of those places where people were where you go in there and the majority of people are talking about the fact that they're in there. It's like it's quite self fulfilling. Yeah, a funny I, observational. I, way. It's fun. No, and I always see. Actually, I saw you. Were you not up at? Is it Shoreditch House? Were you at the one where it had the pool? Where were you recently? I was with, yeah, I had dinner with a friend at Shoreditch you House. bastard, so. and I was raging, and it was like pure piss in the rain here, and I just thought, yeah, it was pretty what nice, am I doing, honest. man? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm booking a flight down there as soon as possible. Hey, they need to, there, there, was, there was apparently talks of opening one in Glasgow, so you might be in luck. Yeah, um, I actually want to tell this story, because they're opening it somewhere in the Merchant City, but I didn't know who owned Soho House until... I was reading about the Wallabies in Loch Lomond. Do you know the, this story? I know the Wallabies in Loch Lomond story. Um, so, and it's Inchmurrin. I think it might be Inchmurrin Island, mm-hmm. but it's one of them. So for anybody who doesn't know, there's an island in Loch Lomond and it is home to a population of wild wallabies. And you're probably wondering, how the utter fuck is there wallabies in Loch Lomond? Well, I'll tell you. There was some like aristocrat, this woman, and I'm sure she lived in Kent. And we're talking like 150 years ago, maybe. And she had all these exotic animals and she brought these wallabies up where she lived on this island and let them run free. And now there's just hundreds of wallabies, which honestly blows my mind. You get them in Australia and you get them in Loch Lomond. It's fucking nuts. And it's amazing they've, they, they, they've survived. I know. I guess they breed and they've got nowhere to go. Ah, exactly. <laughs> and all they've survived. Like just a wallaby, like what the fuck? Like, I just feel more people should know about this. So when I, when I learned this, right, my curiosity peaked. I was like, I need to find out as much as possible. I'm getting quite obsessive about things. I need to know every detail once I learn about something. And I found out that the island had been up for sale a couple of years before. And I was like, I remember that. I remember reading about that. And then the people who bought it were wanting to cull the, the wallabies and just basically wipe them out because they were saying they were a threat to the environment or whatever. The National Trust for Scotland or whoever has that jurisdiction managed to stop them. And then I found out who it was that bought the island and it's Kirsty Young, you know, the BBC broadcaster. Oh, right, okay. They did Desert Island Discs. Okay. It's her and her husband that bought the island. Okay. And her husband is the guy who founded and owned Soho House. Oh, wow. So see when I so love... run by a wallaby, murderous <laughs> wallaby. Exactly. But tell you what, if he's Baron. listening, on your off chance, you never know, if you give me a free membership for Soho House, then I will help you fuck those wallabies up. I'll, I'll personally go and kill every single one of them myself. You know, I value the commitment if, if it is indeed slightly <laughs> sociopathic. I know, I'll just, I'll just pay I like it. the wallabies. Let's, yeah. let's no, keep the wallabies too. and we'll get your membership a legitimate way. I'll just pay, I mean, it's what is it, like £150 <laughs> a month or something. That's more than that, isn't it? I need it though. I go. I'm in so many cities, and I'll see you. There's a Soho house. Hey, if you want, if you want the worldwide membership, exactly. Man, I do. It's the worldwide one. I need. I'd, I'd sell that MacBook now. There's, aye, there's, um, there's one in outside Barcelona in a place mm. called Garaf. It's called the Beach House. Okay, if you're yeah. over, I recommend you go. Amazing. Yeah. My mates. I just always tag along with my pal Steve. Or my mate Gordon. He's got a membership as well. That is good fun. Well, there's yeah, there's the life. Eh? Uh, right back to work because I've just <laughs> I've just taken this way off probably bored everybody to tears um, quite interested in the CBBC stuff so you sure. did the official chart show mm. that, that's huge obviously now in a sort of different guise and mm. format from the traditional radio one yeah, yeah. how did that come about? so yeah so, so the idea behind that so I was working at a, so when I first moved to London I started working as a kind of in-house director at a production company there who 
did mostly corporate films and um you know the kind of odd bit of branded content yeah. um, and not much not much tv commercial work but they but they had a um they were sort of developing a tv side to the business and there was a guy an executive producer who was kind of heading up that the tv side of their business where they were trying to kind of pitch on tv work and he had taken time off to have kids but his original um career had been exec producer on kind of big kid shows of the early 2000s things like live and kicking and cd uk and things love, like that love those shows man yeah so he so he was kind of he was like kind of involved involved in those and uh, he was concepting an idea for a new kid show and you know me being the kind of bullshit person that i was like right well how do i get involved in this so i kind of was like right what can i do to help you so i helped him concept it kind of on the side um and then we filmed a pilot so we pitched the idea to cbbc and then filmed a pilot episode which i directed and shot and did a whole bunch of other stuff on um, on a very kind of small budget, small team. And then we pitched that pilot to CBBC and then we ended up winning the commission for that. So uh, I did 26 episodes, um, 26 episodes that year, um, which was kind of a mixture of live TV in set in the, you know, the Radio 1 Live Lounge. Yeah. It was our kind of like main studio and then these kind of pre-recorded inserts with kids. So we do fun things like, you know, recreate music, music videos shot for shot Huh. But with kids in it and you know do kind of flash mobs in schools and you know one take lip dub through schools and all of that kind of stuff so it was so there was a real kind of variety of stuff and that's the that's the thing that um you know you mentioned earlier about you know producing half an hour a week of stuff at, at yeah. a rapid pace and you know and that was really good fun again it's not kind of where i've ended up wanting to go but we did yeah we did that for a year we got nominated for for a children's bafta that year as well um, for that show and it was just a kind of it was just a mad experience to mm. be honest and on and on a small team and on a small budget doing something like that because a lot of the work that you're doing is very serious it's very mm. considered was that just fun just getting to come up with these daft ideas yeah it the was flash fun. mobs and that sound like that sounds like a great laugh <laughs> it was fun obviously there is a sort of there's a real technical challenge to doing these things and you know and i would never watch any of that back and go oh that was uh really you know precisely executed work <laughs> yeah. it, it was probably more similar you know because I, I would say maybe like documentaries and entertainment television and stuff like that they're probably more in line with each other yeah and i would say commercials are more kind of in line with films and drama and stuff in terms mm-hmm. of how they tend to be made um but yeah it's got a kind of rough and ready appeal mm-hmm. and, and the stuff the stuff is just fun it was stressful i'm not gonna lie to you it was, Pro- yeah. it was a probably sharp year. sharpen your instincts to a degree yeah, if you have to yeah. like be constantly making you decisions but you're making different kinds of decisions you're making less craft decisions and more kind of editorial decisions because yeah. it, this needs it's like right this needs to be entertaining for kids and what the hell do kids find entertaining well a lot of it is just kind of random crap and <laughs> and they like it you know and it was that and and then a lot of celebrity interviews. So I would do, I would lead kind of interviews with with um, pop stars and stuff like that. So we we did that for like a year. These, as I, well. I, I love asking these tabloidy questions. <laughs> which which pop stars stick out in the memory? Uh, mm, I would say most of them were just fine. We had very few sort of diva moments. I have since had. It's not that I've actually talked about publicly, but oh, we, right. we, we might go there if you push me. Um, but that was in my commercial work. Right, um, okay. With, 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 with Lewis Hamilton, the pop star. It wasn't with Lewis Hamilton. Oh, was it that she a nightmare? She wasn't great, but that's not my main story. Oh, I need <laughs> although, to get Although just pre, prior to uh, appearance in that uh, ad, 
that we did, she she'd had that um that big thing about when she went into the sexy fish. She went the sexy fish. Mate, honestly, I was so annoyed at her. <laughs> but for honestly, that. but honestly, that was like a week before, and I was really? like, "You're you're holding this reputation up." Um, yeah. No, she was difficult. All right. No, it was it was another another ad we did. Um, uh, and yeah, that was quite some story. But the uh, but no, during CBBC, I would say people because it was kind of self promo stuff for them, you know, because we were doing. So our TV chart show would run alongside Greg James, who did the um, the radio, the Radio One chart yeah. show. So it would kind of be off the back of that. He would do that, and then he would introduce our show. So then, then it would be like right for the kids, move on to on to CBBC, and you can watch what we are doing right, okay. live on telly. Um, so I guess the celebrity interviews there were generally speaking quite kid friendly. Yeah. Now a lot of people couldn't be bothered being there. They were probably doing their like twelfth junket of the day or something. Yeah, but... I, I, can, I can understand why that would kind of annoy them. Did you have anybody who was just like, "I really can't be asked doing this"? Oh, plenty. Yeah, pretty sure Justin Bieber couldn't be bothered being there. Oh, really? Eh? <laughs> See, this is it. Like, come on, we're pushing. We need names. We need names. We need dates. We need details. <laughs> we need description. Although, what was Justin? Fair, he's like, you know, I'm sure he's in demand. Yeah, I, a lot of people want to speak to him. Um, well, let's just. We'll talk about that WWF advert. That was I found that really interesting. Um, the so that was an advert for the World Wildlife Foundation, specific to the Amazon. So the videos drawing attention to the impact of wildfires in both mm. the rainforest, wildlife, and indigenous people. Um, actually, mentally, fire outbreaks in the Amazon for the first two weeks of September that year were up eighty six percent. On the same period, oh, just a year before. Pretty bleak, yeah. That is pretty fucked up. Yeah. That must be pretty, f- I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Fulfilling, satisfying, getting to work in some well, sort yeah, of... I mean, to be honest, that was like that was sort of a kind of passion project job. I mean, we I did, so I did that with a company that I worked with in Edinburgh called Green Room Films. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first projects I did during lockdown because that was, that was in mid-2020. You know, so there was a, you know, there were a lot of kind of limitations around what we could film so we kind of concepted this basically they wanted their the message about this to be illustrated by a series of high profile celebrities and they kind of working with the agency we kind of concepted something that was a little more interesting whilst understanding that we actually couldn't have most people there in Mm -hmm. person so we built a set in a studio in london a sort of jungle set and the idea was that over the period of the piece the the set would be burned down essentially um, and it would get kind of more and more sparse and, you know, obviously right. the, the obvious visual image being that the, the Amazon is being destroyed at an alarming rate. And then in the middle of that, we had this TV set up where we would play the um, pre-recorded clips that we had uh, recorded with these various celebrities. And then we did have to the studio for the kind of final moment. So what was what was hurts? I'll I'll can do you mind if I tell this sexy fish story just to you go for it to enlighten people. <laughs> I was at do you know I I'm almost certain I was meant to go to sexy fish that day and we sacked it off because it was so sunny. Um because that wouldn't have been appropriately dressed much like appropriately dressed when she aye, right. so sexy <laughs> fish is a really high-end sushi place. It's like roundabout Mayfair, isn't it? I've never been. I so it's roundabout Mayfair. Did you know All Saints on McCannon Street? has been bought over by Sexy Fish and that is what is opening there. Well, we know who will be back trying to get back in. I know. So basically, has been knocked back because she turned up wearing dirty trainers and a baggy cotton tracksuit with her hood up and she's taken a picture of herself and she's put it on Twitter and she said something to the effect of uh, they've class profiled me and they won't let me in because they think I'm poor or whatever. And they were like, 
nah, there's a dress code and it's a restaurant in Mayfair. And the thing that really pissed me off about that and and what may, might sound weird to get annoyed at what some famous singer's up to, why does it affect me? But she was basically saying, so you won't let working class people in? It's like, <laughs> hold on a minute. If somebody from where I grew up or the surrounding areas was going to a restaurant like that, they're going to dress up, they're going to look the part, because that's just the, that's the dress code. So you're telling me that any time somebody from a working class area goes somewhere, that they're just going to dress in a tracksuit. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to, But Paul? there's also the fact that it's like, the thing that is excluding people from going to an expensive sushi restaurant in Mayfair is how much sushi costs at an expensive sushi restaurant in Mayfair, not what you're wearing. Exactly. Like if you have an issue with like, if there's a class issue, it's a financial one. It's not yeah. what you're wearing. That's nonsense. And she's based, rich. Yeah, she's that's, like... <laughs> like that's the reason she even should thought she could go there in the first place. Exactly. Everybody from a lower income area only wears a tracksuit whenever they go anywhere. And she just made an absolute also, mug of herself. Dress in a bloody suit, they probably couldn't afford it anyway. I probably couldn't afford it. I couldn't. I was going as a guest <laughs> to somebody. I would just like it's to nonsense. make that. I'd like to make that clear. But it was just, it was so sunny. Yeah. We were like, nah. We stayed at the Roundhouse in Covent Garden instead, Fair and enough. just and you, you, you thank your your wallet. Thanks you for it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but what was what was her what was her stick? Was she just? A, I think to be honest, I think what annoyed me was. Look, she was being presented as the face of a good cause. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of, there's some forgiveness I can have, although not really, when you're promoting a obviously commercial product, because then it's like, well, no one's doing anything good in this chain, this <laughs> chain of events, really. <laughs> Certainly not kind of, you know, charitable. But it's like, okay, you're going to be the face of this charity. This is genuinely an important issue. This is something worth talking about. It. Your face being involved in this will give the brand some clout and may you know, increase the donations and all of the things necessary to help solve the issue. And she just couldn't bother, be bothered being there. She just, it, she turned up late. She, half the time we were allowed with her, she said, you know, she was going on holiday and she wanted to beat the traffic. So she wanted to leave. She hadn't really learned her lines. She kind of got pissy when we wanted to go for more takes, even though the reason we wanted to go for more takes is because she was missing our cues. And stuff like that. And it was just a bit, it just was not collaborative. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, if you're going to come for something like this, you have to be in it. Because yeah. otherwise it's just fraudulent, to be honest. And I'm not pretending that advertising is this kind of world of ethical transparency. But I think when it comes to charitable appeals, I do think there's something different there. And I think we were all doing it for very reduced fees. Yeah. You know, we really kind of pulled out of the bag just because we thought it was going to be, firstly, a nice piece of film, which I was interested in doing, and something actually worth doing. Yeah, and it's like that's what she should have been seeing it as, and I don't, I don't think she did. So for that same project, Lewis Hamilton donated two hundred sixty thousand pounds. So that kind of that communicates to me anyway that he was kind of serious about it. What was he like? Because he gets a bad rap across the board. Yeah, I mean, well, he was. I mean, he was very professional. I mean, I think this is the thing as well is that I think whether you know it's obviously different spending a lot of time with people, but when you're getting kind of the odd Vox Pop talking head thing for a project like this. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, he had a professional setup. His team were professional. He sent us what we needed to yeah. get, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I don't have, I have no complaints. Now let's rip into the people who were really terrible to work with. <laughs> Name this them. Is, this is, is what everybody this wants is, to hear. Yeah, it's true, but it's dangerous territory. Right, um, I tell you what, I promise I will cut the names out. I promise you, you have you have my word right. The names will be bleeped okay. out. 
So oh, I'll go into just it for, for my time, right? So tell me the names cut, and then cut describe. the name of the the brand and the person. Okay, I'll cut. I'll cut those. <laughs> sorry, I then I can tell you the story. <laughs> if any, if any pals want to know who it is we're talking about, yeah, you yeah. can give me a message. But yeah, yeah, I promise it'll be bleeped okay, out. Fine, I'll trust you on that. Okay. Um. Okay. Well, the worst experience I've had was. Oh, really? Yeah. She was close to being the worst person I've met, never mind the worst celebrity I've so met. So is that all a big act, the whole, what oh. am I like? Yeah, she's like, she's vile. Oh. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, and to be honest, I've, been, mom, I've not been shy about telling this really? story. My anyway. mum cannot stand her. I'm going to have to phone on She has this. good intuitions. Yeah, like my mum absolutely despises um, her. No, so we did, I did a, a gin commercial with her and it was, you know, she was being paid some, you know, obnoxious fee for this thing um and we were filming in a ballroom in um piccadilly circus mm. uh, and the the whole idea behind this gin it's actually a scottish gin but the whole idea behind the gin was it was very kind of elaborate and it you know kind of over the top and yeah. obviously reputation is sort of you know big dresses and makeup and all of that kind of stuff so funny colored hair yeah, yeah, exactly so we designed um we designed this set that was very over the top. It was like a big throne. There were kind of purple flowers that were going to be cascading out of her dress and climbing the wall. It was like fruit, you know, overflowing fruit bowls, yeah. all, of, all of that kind of stuff. It felt very like a kind of Renaissance painting. And the idea was she was going to, she come in, she's sitting on this throne and she's going to sort of deliver this sort of sultry monologue. Um, She, okay, I'll go through quickly the list of things that drove me absolutely mental <sighs> that day. She... Turned up, she turned up an hour late, um, didn't speak to anyone when she, you know, she got driven up to the front of the hotel in her car, you know, just kind of walked out, walked past us, um, you know, because myself and the producer had gone out to meet her. She went straight up to her, her dressing room. She had a hotel suite booked for her dressing room. Um, the, uh, you know, she was kind of, wouldn't look anyone in the eye, wouldn't speak to anyone that wasn't me or the producer, you know, she wouldn't speak to the runners, wouldn't speak to the first AD, wouldn't speak to, you know, she insisted also insisted on bringing her own styling team at a cost of something like 13 grand or something because they had to be blown over, blown over. They had to be flown over from New York and Barcelona like that day because she needed to have those people. Um, all of which is, these are not particularly outrageous commercial demands, hilariously, mm. but um, I, anyway, so she was being super different. She hadn't learned the lines. She refused to read the script until she'd finished her Ocado delivery, which she was doing on her phone. <laughs> All of this kind of stuff. It was very diva, very diva. She shouted at a runner for not, because she didn't have the right fake nails. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, anyway, she then, we then, then eventually, which is, you know, we're a few, we're quite a few hours behind now. And, you know, she comes down onto set um, and she, you know, so we've designed this set, the art department, you know, the five or six people in the art department have been there since like five in the morning building this, you know, elaborate set. She's been brought into her, in her dress. She's come down on set. She walks in and she looks in the first thing she goes, it's tacky. I don't like it. I'm not doing it. And she turns around and she walks back out. You are shitting me. And then she goes and sits on the ground in the lobby of the hotel in this like 15 grand dress while all of her team she's got a team of about seven or eight people photographers and agents and managers and all that stuff and she just sits with her arms folded in a huff on the ground and she says i'd rather just not i'd rather not do it it's it, it's so me 10 years ago i was like well firstly this isn't your music video so yeah. it doesn't need to be you of any generation <laughs> you're here being paid to be yeah. the face of this um and 
she was wanting to rip the shirt. She was showing me pictures of what she thought it was going to be. It's like, well, why was my main question? Why mm. did you think it was going to be that? <laughs> we sent you, and also, you know, we it's good protocol. Like we did, we sent her agent and her manager all of the art department boards exactly you know they just haven't been looked at i mean she just has not looked at it. she hasn't read the script she's turned up knowing she's being paid a fortune and she's mm. taken a half when she's seen stuff i will also say to the art department they did a bloody good job like that she's wrong about yeah. that um anyway so she had a monitor from the camera wheeled up wheeled out to her sitting in the lobby of the hotel and she basically ripped the set apart she was like get rid of that get rid of that get rid of that and tore everything out on threat of leaving basically because this is the issue with you'd think, well, why didn't you just tell her to fuck off? And the issue with a piece like this is that she is what, she's the value in yeah. this commercial because otherwise it's it, it, otherwise the, the brand isn't there. It's like, she's the face of this. So yeah. You have to have her inside and she knows that. So she's being, throwing her weight around. Anyway, so it doesn't get, get slightly worse. Um, so she tear, tears the set apart. Eventually, we've got this super strict, I think the poor art department, um, art director, who's an absolute trooper, you know, managed to keep a straight face. She comes back in. We do a few takes of the wide shot of this thing. I'm having to kind of feed her lines as we go and all this stuff. She FaceTimes our child for like 10 minutes in the middle of, you know, while we're all waiting. Bear in mind, we've got 40, 50 crew just kind of like waiting around. Mm. She shouted at the location manager whose phone buzzed at one point about him not being a team player. Hilarious. Um, and uh, anyway, this is all <laughs> got more and more. And I was, I was, I was getting so frustrated. Um, she um she then yes and then on that we'll go to do this fight this the first take of the film um i might decide after this whether this needs to stay in or out because this this i don't well maybe it's fine um we'd start on the on the close-up of her lips because the whole idea was that it's kind of her lips are painted the color of the gin all yeah. that kind of stuff um we start in this close-up and she won't let the camera she wouldn't also sit in for any lighting you had to get someone else to sit in while we lit and then she would come in at the last minute um she then made us all have a long discussion about how much post-work, post-production work we're going to do on her to make her skinnier and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and smoothing her skin out and all of the things that does happen in sort of commercials, especially with celebrities. And yeah. she'll definitely have it done in her music videos and stuff like that. Um, but we had to have the discussion right there and then. Bear in mind, we're hours over schedule, so everyone's tearing their hair out. Um, we eventually then get to go for, this is the kind of the final moment. We go for a take on this, the the camera starts recording we call action and then she just goes oh hold on a second and she picks up her phone which she's had in her lap puts it on loudspeaker and then proceeds to re- start returning clothes to netta porter saying that she hadn't had the full refund and we're just she was like sorry I'm, I, i've got to be quick i need to re- like <laughs> return these clothes and we're all just like oh my, oh god. my god it was it was honestly and i know these things kind of in a list i mean they sound ridiculous but a day of, especially when you're invested in making this good, you know, everyone is, you know, is, has a boss, right? They are, mm-hmm. they need to be, you know, doing a good job. And also we just wanted to make a damn good film. Yeah. And it's just like, well, I think working with people who are so uncollaborative and, yeah. and make it so much about them individually is just, it's sort of impossible. And that isn't my general experience with people, obviously, and certainly not with actors. Yeah. Um, but, it was it was odd. It was see, quite extreme, to be honest. See, with that, like this always puzzles me, and I wonder if somebody's on the psychopath scale when they behave that way. Mm. And my reasoning for that is, let's just say your instinct is to be vile to people. 
Do you not still have some sort of semblance of reality mm. of how you're being perceived? But I also think even from a narcissist perspective, it serves you to have people on your side. Exactly, exactly. So it's yeah. just like, why Why would you be that way? Well, she was being enabled. I mean, I, we could see she was being enabled. Yeah. She's also been famous for quite a long time. Yeah. I'm narrowing the clues yeah, <laughs> as to who this might be. But, the whole... I, but there's a way in which the people around her really do just enable the behavior. And for, I think you you might just lose your mind to it, right? Is there anybody that kind of took you by surprise where you maybe had a preconception of them then they come in and you're like, oh, you're a diamond? Um, I find that often the people at the top of their game mm. are actually like that, at the very top. Well, I guess nothing to prove, right? I mean, that's yeah. the theory. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I've, I've definitely had pleasant experiences with people. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, but I don't think any, I mean, you know, I did a commercial with Tom Daly uh, All right. a, a few years ago and, yeah, he he was he was just a nice guy. Seems like a nice guy. Yeah, he to me. was, and, and he kind of just was what he was. Obviously, no one is completely unaffected. That's all I'll say. Is if you're famous, you can be a decent person and still be kind of like weirdly distracted. And kind of like if you met them in a non-celebrity circumstance and you didn't know they were a celebrity, you would probably think this is a slightly odd person. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, he was a nice guy. But there's, but there's all but there's a way in which everyone I don't know how you could survive that kind yeah. of fame and not be totally slightly disconnected in some manner. I think you're only people are only human, and it is such a it is such an unusual and obscene life to live, and people always treating you differently, and you have certain privileges, and I think we possibly have to kind of make certain allowances and be like, what would I be like oh, God, if oh, I no experienced doubt. that every day? I also don't know what I would be like if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, Yeah, you know, or or if I was doing something different. I mean, it's like you you can't, you know, I, I, it's too hypothetical. A, a good and extreme example of that is the guy, have you seen the guy Liam Payne from One Direction's interviews recently? I've seen clips. <laughs> Mate, fuck me. What's <laughs> like, the general... So discussion. the the one where it kind of first seemed to cut, he was acting really strange and all that in social media, and I thought that's just a mad rich guy acting like a fanny. But what, remember, remember <laughs> when uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? How could we forget? There was that. So so Liam Payne is then doing an interview on Good Morning Britain. And I've watched it through the cracks of my fingers. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, has he not got any friends or managers or anything to pull him away? And in a nutshell, he's talking with this mental accent. Could be Welsh, could be Indian, could be American. Basically, Will. My impression of it is, you know, Will Smith is one of the world's greatest emotors. He kept calling him an emotor, and you're like, mate, what the fuck's an emotor? He's an actor shop, one of the greatest emotors. And I think that Will Smith did what he figured he had to do. So it's all this, and you're like, <laughs> mate, it's, it's mental, right? If you've not, Andy, if you're listening, right? If you've not seen it, go and watch Liam Payne, Oscars, Good Morning Britain. So it's fucking mad, right? There are accusations that he's, I'm trying not to be libelous here. Um, people are basically theorizing that he's out, he's not on coke. Right. And, and you're like, it kind of seems like that. Mm. So, I mean, that's just a statement of fact. Um, what that people are saying that yeah people are saying uh, people, a statement of fact that people are saying that and it's a statement of fact that he appears that way whether he is or he isn't but it's sure. like it's kind of like he's acting I don't know it's absolutely nuts but then he did he did that so you, th- you think oh he's going to have the fear he's surely going to lie low nope he goes on this podcast with this American guy and he's just talking like David Brent 
the whole way through it and you're like what is going on and honest to god for a while i thought he's having a laugh like mm. this is just a pure character a bold publicity stunt i like a sort of reverse dennis penis type thing i was like he's um this this is some sort of pr stunt so he's he's seems to be mega affected some of the shit and then he's doubling down on it and you're like it makes me think you're being enabled i'm like if, if i behaved like that in any sense uh, in any scale I would have 10 people who would immediately be like, you need to cop on, man. You need to but, get a grip. But, but, but people change their friends. Yeah. Because also, you know, if you got One Direction famous, the yeah. truth is your most of your friends would no longer fit into your life in any kind True, of easy yeah. way. You know, because your life becomes unrecognizable. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I've never been One Direction famous, but I can, I, I mean, I see how these, these people's lives are and they're required everywhere all the time yeah. doing a million different things. And of course they lose their friends. And of course they break up with their non-famous partners. And Because they, they're just, they're, I'm not saying it's correct, but it's it's almost inevitable because your life becomes totally incommensurate with real people's lives. Yeah. Because you'll be like, you'll say, do you fancy doing something? Yeah, do you want to go to Nando's? And they'll be like, no, I was thinking about getting a jet to LA. And you're like, oh, yeah. right, okay. Or also, but they probably also got like six months planned in advance. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like, all it's cracked up to be, is it? Like that level of fame? I wouldn't know. No. I'm sure there are good bits about it. Yeah, I, I know. I'm sure there are pros and cons, yeah. but are more pros and cons, but I suppose the cons are probably very No, I would agree. I mean, I think, very I mean, intense. yeah. I mean, I guess that there's a certain level of anonymity that everyone takes for granted that you just no longer have. Um, I wanted to talk about some of your short films. Sure. I'm conscious of time. I don't want to keep you too long, but um, no, Better, the short film, which was the Irish Prize winner, which is a LGBT film festival. Mm. My understanding of it, so it's written by Lucy Heath, who also stars in it. Now, my understanding of it is it's the story of a single parent who has a young son mm-hmm. who expresses some particularly what could be described as effeminate characteristics. And she's then confronted with this dilemma of she's the one who feels that she's influenced his mm. characteristics and behaviour, but she notices he's being bullied. Mm. And she then, in a quite dystopian, it takes this wee dystopian turn where mm. it's like, oh, you can take him in for an operation. Yeah, what? well, it sort of presents a, a, a potential scientific intervention. Yeah. You know, and I guess it has a kind of parallels with a sort of black mirror construct yeah. in that manner. So, yeah, so the idea is that, um, yeah, her, her she is supportive of her son. She's sort of best friends with her son. Her son is is a, an effeminate character. Probably he's... You know, he he may well be trans or or you know maybe gay. Yeah. And the she's presented. He's being bullied for that at school, and she's presented with this possible medical intervention that says, look, we can just we can just heteronormatize him essentially. And the question, the interesting question, I guess within the within the film is, well, firstly, should she do that? And you might think, well, obviously not. But I think what what it raises is that would be a serious temptation for people. Yeah. And the temptation is understandable in some sense because, you know, it, it, are you are you expected to be fighting a kind of a cause all the time and mm-hmm. even through your own personal relationships or are you just looking to acutely solve the problems of the child that you're responsible for? And... So, 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 so uh, the, I think the the aim of the film is to show a scenario in which you can understand the temptation, even if you don't draw the same conclusions. Yeah. You can understand the temptation of it because 
essentially has a kind of it has a conversion therapy undertone. And yeah. the question that's interesting to me as a as a gay man, the question that's interesting to me is what's wrong with conversion therapy? And it's like, well, the, the you know, people think there might be an obvious answer to that, but it might not be that obvious because what is actually wrong with conversion therapy, in my mind, is that, well, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And and it, it it's both that it doesn't work and that it's motivated by, you know, let's say bigoted intentions. But the primary damage is that it doesn't work, is that people are put through essentially psychological torture and nothing changes and they become more repressed and resentful and bitter and all yeah. of the things you don't want to be. And this poses the question is like, well, what if it works perfectly? It's like, well, does that change the ethical dilemma? Is there something inherently wrong about the question? It's like, there might be, I mean, there may well be, but it's like, if we removed the fact that this is a barbaric practice for pragmatic reasons yeah. and made it a seamless process that you can engage in. It's like, well, how much damage would that do to a person and to a society? Mm. Cause that's not an option we're actually presented with now. Yeah. Because sexuality is, is, seems to be relatively hard and fast. Yeah. It, it, it really, really, really made me think about how, how far would a mother go to protect her child mm. and that dilemma. Cause if you, it, but also the question is what, what, how do you define protect precisely? Yeah, I know. Because and it was a whole thing of well, she knows she can't change the environment, so does she mm. then change her child? Mm. And it does. You, you are presented with all of these questions. You're like fucking hell, because if your child is at risk of the, from the environment they're in, then it's like. But it's also the it's, it's the it, it it's broader because it's like it's the forever battle between how much are you as an individual expected to burden the responsibility of a movement it's like it might well be holistically better to encourage people to just be themselves and not to change themselves for the environment Mm -hmm. and you know i probably agree with that broadly um but it's also not what we do on an individual basis you know maybe not to do with sexuality but we change ourselves for the environment all the time and it helps us individually do you know i was remember that podcast i was talking about earlier Mm -hmm. um unreal the one yeah. that charts the rise of, by the way, great podcast for anybody who wants to hear it, charts the rise of um, reality TV sure. and, and how it's presented from docudrama, uh, like, so, uh, yeah, docudrama or docusoap, like such as The Only Way is Essex, and it charts how they've all contributed mm. to, to that landscape. But in the first one, they're talking about Big Brother and they're talking about how um, people were punished for being the same all the time, you know, for being real. I'm the same way everybody and it's like there's no such there's no one person on earth who is just one character it's like you're different people to are you a different person to different people in different groups in different environments well um, that's also that I mean that is 100 percent true and yeah. I think and I think that is you know there's a kind of there's something kind of poetic and nice about the idea of of your true self let's say yeah but that is incredibly hard to put your finger on. It's like who you are with your mother is not who you are with your partner. And they are both, let's say, let's imagine they are both particularly important people in your life. It's like, but you're not the same person, just like you're not the same when you're in the bathroom by yourself. Exactly. Do you know, you're not the same person with your mum, your granny, your friends or anything, but I could straight off the bat, I'm not the same person at Celtic Park or Hamden as I am when I'm at the GFT for the Catalan Film Festival. And I also don't think you should be. No, you shouldn't be. And it's funny that that this, and I wonder how much Big Brother and stuff and, and Love Island and these shows have contributed to that. Because like as I say, you're, on those shows, you're rewarded for being the same all the time. And it's like, 
I actually think you'd have to be a bit of a nutcase to always to be the same all the time. I'm not the same person. Well, it's not very socially intelligent. No, it's not. It's and you, also people do there's a sense in which you're expected to pride yourself on being kind of oh I'm just honest and it's yeah, like yeah you're the fucking asshole mate yeah but it's also the fact that the actual honest response to a scenario is I am different in different scenarios yeah. I think that is honest yeah and I think and I think I don't think it's it's not a lie it's not a manipulation it's a it's being socially intelligent and able to respond to different stimulus and understand the psychological needs and requirements of everyone around you it's like that's that's honest psychological needs and requirements because when you said when someone says i'm just honest and that makes me think of i tell it how it is i just see how you're like no well that's shorthand for saying you're just not a very nice person it's also the shorthand for saying you're not very socially adaptive yeah and i and and the idea that the idea of being socially adaptive is conflated with being fake is well i just think that's an incorrect conflation i do as well with in the film um better are you are you seeking to initiate a conversation and ask certain questions, or are you, were you holding a mirror up to society and saying, you know, form your own questions, form your own thoughts? Well, I guess as much as a, um, I would say maybe they're the same thing in some sense because I would view it as a as a starting kicking off point. I mean, as much as a short film is ever going to to you know be particularly consequential. I think our idea was, yeah, I mean, you were posing a question and then letting people derive their own thoughts. The question mm-hmm. is, how far should a mother go? Mm-hmm. And is essentially is is adapting to your how far, how much should you adapt to your surroundings? And how much are you responsible for pushing forward what people would consider a progressive movement? It's not mega succinct that, but essentially that's the question because and I don't have an answer to that because mm-hmm. it's because <laughs> The issue with these questions is that people always think there's an answer to a question like that, but the devil's in the details and, and it depends on individual circumstances. And in that scenario, it's like, well, your option was that he continues to get bullied and is miserable, or the option is you change him and have you done something fundamentally wrong there? And I suspect you might have, but it's like, it's not so obvious when you're faced with extreme circumstances it's not so obvious Mm -hmm. i love watching things like these and i love the conversation that comes from it and it also reminds me of why i sometimes watch old episodes of the only way is essex because now that we're like i need my (laughs) i need my brain to quieten down a wee bit because there's there's so many questions coming here i mean i know it was written by um by lucy heath but you've obviously had a Mm. you've had a major part to play in and how the story was told has, was your own experience tied up in that in any way, or was that are you looking at it from a mm. more of a distance? Um, I would say no, not 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 in any direct sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm gay. I'm, I'm definitely not trans. Um, my experience, I think, is a relatively generic one of of being, you know, a young gay person. I didn't come out till I was twenty or twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some sense, you know, your experience as a teenager is 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 limited um in a way that it that it perhaps isn't for um most straight people. Although certainly not all, because you can be limited in a whole variety mm-hmm. of ways. You know, if you're if you're the if you're the <laughs> the straight ugly kid, your experience of, <laughs> of of sexuality at school isn't isn't necessarily particularly broad either. Yeah. Um but uh, uh 
but so, so there's a sense in which, yeah, you you kind of you know there is there is definitely you know drawing a parallel to the film. There's definitely a a value in a, a time that we're progressing to where people can be coming out and being more honest with their sexuality mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. Um. So, I guess the film sets itself in a world whereby the boy is being relatively honest. Not he hasn't he didn't talk about sexuality or or gender per se, but there's a sense in which he doesn't fit. He's just being he himself. Fit the mold, and he's being himself, and that probably you know if we're honest about it, that's probably representative of of either a, a gender dysphoria or a, or a, or a sexuality mm. um, issue. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I wouldn't say my personal experience is particularly invested in that. I mean, I guess I have an interest in the topic generically. Yeah. I suppose from the outside looking in, it would appear to me then that that would be better for you because you're able to distance yourself mm. from it instead of it, you know, touching a nerve mm. or kind of hitting too close to home because that could maybe influence the way in which you told the story because it seems uh, it's very much an, an observation. To me, anyway, seems yeah. like an observational perspective. Well, as- I think. Well, I think what's good about it is... Um, what's good about that distance is that I'm not viewing this as an, a piece of activism. Yeah. I... And like everything is a bloody piece of activism mm. at the moment. And I, I, that just, it, I just find it less interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think if everything has a clear takeaway or is asking, because people, because people would say, well, things don't have a clear takeaway. They ask questions, but they ask questions often within a really narrow parameter of acceptable answers right yeah so it's so i think what i'm the 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 question is there's something inherently wrong about conversion therapy it's like well obviously that's a controversial question i'm not you know being naive about that but it's like well let's really ask why that's the case let's not just go well it's disgusting it's like well it might be but why is it disgusting like let's like why why does that Mm. unappeal you so dramatically and it's like well that i think taking a step back and and posing things kind of philosophically i find that interesting because Mm. there's bloody nothing that's self-evident despite the fact that our i would argue our political culture at the moment and certainly our socio-political culture and especially our socio-political culture kind of in the arts on the left bases itself upon things being self-evident and it's like nothing is self-evident do you feel there's more of a social value then? And and because instead of making that assertion that here is where I stand, like we sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Well, no one that, cares like, where I stand. That's the main thing. Yeah, that's I, that's what I was going to say. So because yeah. I'll rephrase that. So instead of you saying here's where I stand, and I would like you to think the same way, would you sometimes consciously keep your personal stance mm. a wee bit more concealed in order to? I'm also not sure where I stand. I think on, on a lot of things. Mm. I think that's that's you know my I, I see a real value in ambiguity and I see a real value in, in, you know, playing devil's advocate. I'm mm. bad for playing devil's advocate <laughs> on, on a lot of topics, but I think it's a necessary function. I think that we are, I think it is more socially valuable to pose questions than yeah. attempt to answer them. And, you know, people might well have the right answer. It's just says who is the, is always going to be the response to that. I think that's a really, a really good point. It's more socially valuable to ask the question and to attempt to answer them because to attempt to answer them would then be, I suppose, making the assertion that you think you are completely right and everyone should come around to your way of thinking. But it's also it's also it's also as if there it's possible to answer every question. Mm. It's like there might not be an answer to every question. There might be just 
a constant process by which we update our behaviors and test and try things out. I mean, I don't know how you answer. Okay, well, wading into very controversial territory, but we'll stay light on it. I don't know how you answer the the, the question of the the contention between traditional feminism and trans activism. It's like mm. people have very strong opinions of it on both sides. And it's like, it seems like a almost impossible question. I mean, is this a subject that has always been raging or a, or a sort of clash that's always been raging, but we only see more of it now on social media or is it, is this relatively new? Because again, to me, these are two, there are two worlds where I'm like, this is. What are the two worlds? Sorry. The sort of trans mm. activism and your sort of traditional feminist mm. activism. These are, and you see them constantly. Like I, I had to learn, so I had to learn maybe a few years ago, I was like, what the hell does TERF mean? Because mm. this is just, this is territory that is just, because why would I be straying into that, to either yeah, yeah. of those? But now well, there's you, a lot of places you could go. Yeah, and <laughs> right. and, and yeah, and now you, you see it everywhere. And I mm. have wondered to myself, I'm like, is this relatively new? And if so, where does it come from? Obviously, people, has, obviously people's experiences aren't new. Yeah. But I think the broad conversation is new-ish. Yeah, that's what I mean. Just, obviously, obviously helped by platforms that allow anyone and everyone to give their opinion at any yeah. time i mean that obviously is, is, has produced conversations as yeah. well but obviously i mean obviously people have there's, there's no question that people who have disassociated with their sex or gender have been around for a long time yeah yeah and you know feminists have been around for a, a relatively long time as well i mean it seems this, the tension between those two positions Lots of people would argue there is no tension, but clearly there is some no, tension. There, there evidently is. <laughs> um, and, you know, I guess either side would argue misunderstanding on the other. I mean, I'm neither female nor trans, so mm. this is a kind of third-party perspective. Yeah. And I'll caveat that. But it seems to me the tension is that traditional feminism requires us to accept that there is something fundamentally unchangeable about someone's sex at and therefore, that is the basis on which they are being discriminated against. Because you can't claim that women are being treated differently to men unless you accept that there is a hard definition of women. Mm. As, as far as I can tell, that, that, that seems logical. Obviously, when you get into... And I don't even know if it's... It's trans to some degree, but it's also just the kind of sort of gender, gender social constructionist types that would argue that, well, that, you know, that gender is a, is a, is a sort of fluid construct hmm. and that is also then part of the trans discussion about well you know can you change your i think sex i think trans seems to pertain more to sex than it does to gender i think <laughs> however regardless of, of of that the case there is inherently going to be a tension between um a group that believes that the, the fundamental characteristic that they can't change is responsible for their mistreatment and the people that say, well, no, you can change that fundamental characteristic because you can't, they're incommensurate and you can't argue for both of those things. Mm. Now, there are far more charitable ways of having this discussion than, than, than is being had. Yeah, it's, it seems to It's very under, but this is the issue with all conversation at the moment is that there is such a lack of charity and such a lack of, acceptance of ambiguity in grey areas there might not be a clear answer to this yeah i think the only thing the only conclusion i seem to have come to 
is that there are multiple grey areas and it just is not black and white. And well, I it's like it's, almost all a grey area. Yeah, and it's the insistence that no, it is black and white and you're like, well, guys, girls, as far as I can see, like there is... There ain't no clear answer to this. It's, but, it, but, it apply, but it applies to any any topic you're going to pit groups against one another for. You're going to there's always going to be a position that 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 questions the boundaries of that group mm. and the validity of the boundaries of that group. And if your movement has been based on those the boundaries of that group being solid and unchangeable, and a, like a really reasonable definition of a group of people, then mm-hmm. there's going to be tension because because then the, your whole construct has to break apart yeah. to some degree. Another thing I've kind of noticed, and it's it's something I'm just like, oh, I'm really I don't want to pay too much attention to this. It ain't really my fight, and and not saying that in the sense where I'm like, well, oh, anybody who's marginalised or getting a hard time, oh well, your problem. Don't mean like <laughs> that, but I'm kind of like, oh, I don't understand this enough. Um, but I feel like the extremities on both I suppose you get this with any mm. any groups that clash but the extremities on both sides I think kind of diminish at times their own arguments because if you're being if you're being too extreme whether it's in your aggression or your assertion of certain things I always think you're diminishing your own cause mm. because what happens is people will see that because I suppose the more extreme representations will be magnified to the point where they then will appear to be uh, well, that's an the chief that, example. That's a sort of media and social media issue, yeah. right? I mean, obviously, the more clickbaity the moment, the more yeah. the more kind of easy it is to get many eyeballs on it. But but yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's this. You know, there is a variety of topics that we're failing to have careful, charitable, nuanced discussions about yeah. because because if if you don't agree with me specifically right now in every detail that I'm proposing, you are hateful. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm that's, well, well, it's just, well, it's just not true what because it? it's because I don't think there's a single person on this planet that I agree with in every facet. Mm-hmm. But then, then if my criteria was, well, you're therefore disqualified. Well, I would be alone, and so would you, and so would everyone that's listening yeah. to this. The um, is what one of the definitions of tyranny, isn't it? The removal of all nuance, <laughs> and I that yeah, that is a great point. You either agree with me completely. Or you're disqualified from society. Now yeah. that Joel, you know the comedian Joel Isaac mm. made a joke. I can't remember what it was now. So it's like the other. So it's like yesterday. Mm. Made a joke, and somebody in the audience phoned the police because <laughs> he didn't like the joke. Yeah, and the police true. had to it's investigate it. And I think even the police were like, "This is fucking ridiculous," but we have yeah. an obligation to speak to you. Mm. And he kind of closed the matter, and you're like, "Have we gone?" Like that's we're through the looking glass now. Well, it's I mean it, it's fundamentally a, a free speech thing, and you know you can't you don't you don't get to supersede free speech because mm. all we have is language games and the and and the and the conversations we're having. Yeah. That is it. People, there is nothing more. There's nothing more true than the fact that we are having a series of conversations that shape how our culture goes forward so nothing more true in the in the in the social realm you know and if we can't have completely free and open discussion and be play devil's advocate and see nuance where things appear initially to be self-evident we're going nowhere because that is the only reason we are here and not 50 years ago it's like the only reason mm. 
is the fact that we were able to have open and free discussions. Yeah. And I and I think the the creeping the creeping danger is when people start conflating words with violence and start saying certain things cannot be said. Why can they not be said? Well, they're they're self evidently incorrect. It's like there is nothing self evident. You mm-hmm. have to question everything, and obviously you have to do these things with charity, and you have to do it with at, at appropriate moments, and you know pick your pick your place and your time, and all of these kind of things. It's not helpful, you know, like because this you could obviously take this to the kind of anti vaxxer argument and stuff like that. It's like I don't think anti vaxxers should be told to sit down and shut up, but there is there is a place for the fact that perhaps our leading politicians shouldn't be spouting anti-vax opinions given yeah. this the evidenced result of that. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean they can't talk about it. But 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 there's obviously there is a conflict between action action and speech, but in general, broadly speaking, shutting down conversation is not progressive. No, it's not. And in fact it just reroutes it into into other territories. And into yeah. kind of bitter or resentful people who act out in a variety of ways socially, you know, and otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it doesn't, you know, people who aren't free to say what they want end up not being good people. Yeah. The, the immediate rebuttal to that is ordinarily, you can say what you want, but there's no con- there's no freedom from consequence and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah. Well, that's true. true. That it's is true. true, yeah. But I, I, think, that. I think that, then people think, well, your consequence will be my wrath because I don't like what you're saying. Oh, fair enough. You can, I mean, your consequence, my consequence, which I think is ridiculous. But my consequence can be your wrath, but what you don't have is the the option to say that I can't speak. Yeah. You no, know, I, I agree with the, look, the statement that there's no speech without consequences. It's like, yeah, that, yeah. that in some sense is self evidently true. It's like, yeah, yeah. you speak, things will happen. Yeah. Even if they're small things, small or big things will happen. It's like, the, because rights and responsibilities come hand in hand. You don't get to have the right to speak without bearing the responsibility of what you say. Mm. Nor, you know, nor nor does it happen the other way around. So, yeah, you know, so, so, so if you have if you have the right to speak, you do have to bear the responsibility. And, but the responsibility this, can't be you no longer having the right, because yeah. that's circular. <laughs> in the same breath, the the consequences to what you say shouldn't always be being met with. Uh, an unbalanced response or, a, or a, an exaggerated response, whatever you, an extreme mm. response, let's say. Well, I think ideally it wouldn't be. Yeah. However, don't live in an ideal However, world, the da- however, the danger is, of course, that you can't tell people not to have an exaggerated response because they're also free to do that. Yeah. <sighs> I might I subjectively li- disagree with that. I, know. I need to lie down. <laughs> the uh, to, as we kind of round up. Kind of keen to hear what you're up to, what's coming up in terms mm. of projects. Are you now just going through the process of pitching, writing treatments, or is it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got a variety of things on the go. Um, yeah, pitching on 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 commercial work at the moment, which you know a large portion of my time is spent in the kind of pitch process, and then yeah. obviously when you win the job, you go into pre-production, then shooting, and then post-production. Um, but yeah, in in in, in kind of sort of finishing off some post-production, so color grading and and sound mixing and composition, all of that kind of stuff on a on a previous job where I worked with a bunch of talented people on that, as well as sort of concurrently in in pitch stage for the for the next thing. Hmm. I'm also um, developing a, a TV series with with a few people. Very nice as well. Um, 
which I'm not sure I can say much about at the moment. But. Treated to secrecy. When when it's out, when you're promoting it, come back and will, tell me about it. I will it. tell you. Well, fingers crossed it gets to that point. Yeah. <laughs> but one, just one, my, kind of one of my last questions. When people do things, it's often for the motivation of whether it's the final reward, whether it's the fame, the adulation, the awards, um, money, financial gain, that kind of thing. But there's so much work that probably goes into the treatments, maybe the majority of your work for a large part of the year anyway. Do you do you love that process, even if it doesn't come to anything, just as much as you love creating something? Because I feel like if you didn't really enjoy it, then it would kind of, you'd be like, oh, fuck this, I'm not doing that. Hmm. I wouldn't say I love the, the the pitch processing as much as I like actually doing the work. However, you are you're motivated to do the pitch part because you love the work. Yeah. So you're obviously they're connected. And I think there's a, you know, you know, I, I do what I do because I find it meaningful and because it really does fulfill me. And I, and that is not, you know, obviously I think what, what I find meaning is, is that I have a a goal and it's probably a shifting goal, but I have something that I'm aiming towards Mm -hmm. because that means that, I'm continually motivated to strive to get closer and closer to that goal. Now I am fully believe that I will never reach that goal. And I think that's not because I wouldn't reach my previous goals. It's because that goal has to keep shifting in order for this entire process to remain meaningful. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it's a cliche to say it's the journey, not the destination, but fundamentally that's what that is. It's like, you want to be fulfilled all the time. You don't want to live your life 95% disappointed and 5% when you reach there. That 95% has to be the good part. It has to be the meaningful part. And in some sense, the meaning vanishes when you reach it, which is why the goal needs to keep shifting. Keeps keeps, keeps moving forward. And, and, you know, you're you're never going to be in a position where you can't conceptualize something greater than what you're currently doing, which is a blessing because – making incremental progress towards that shifting goal is is just what the hell keeps you going. Yeah, like a very complicated carrot and a stick. Always in yeah. front, you're always slightly out of reach. Yeah, well, moving you, forward and, and truthfully, it. you probably don't want the carrot. Yeah. But you understand its value. Absolutely. What a great way to round this up, mate. Thank you so much for no worries. being so generous with your time and for telling me all about that bitch. <laughs> and that other bitch... Um, no, thank you, mate, and thank you for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon. Cheers. Blethered was written, recorded, and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.